The social scientist Arthur Brooks tells the story of walking past his teenage daughter's bedroom, expecting to see her staring absentmindedly into the Zoom screen, but instead she's laughing uproariously at a video that she's found. So he asks her what she's looking at, and she says, it's an old man singing and dancing like a chicken. Well, it turns out that old man is Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones, performing his 1965 hit, I Can't Get No Satisfaction, at a recent concert. So Mick Jagger still has it at 79 years old, but at least from the perspective of a teenager, when he dances, he looks like a chicken, a warning to all the baby boomers out there. Well, this precipitated a conversation between the social scientist and his teenage daughter about the paradox of satisfaction. We crave it, we long for it, we believe we can attain it, at times we briefly experience it, but then it seems to slip through our fingers. Jagger sings, I try and I try and I try to find satisfaction. How? Presumably through sex and consumerism, according to the lyrics of the song, but it doesn't seem to work. And isn't this what we all want? not only for ourselves, but also for our kids. We simply want to be happy, to find fulfillment and satisfaction. One of the ancient and perennial questions that we human beings must ask ourselves is, what is the good life? What is the good life? And then a related question, how can it be lived? We long to live fulfilling lives that make sense. And yet it seems that we are increasingly confused about what such a life might entail. The longtime University of Chicago professor Leon Cass recently wrote a book entitled Leading a Worthy Life. And after decades as a professor who taught the great books of Western civilization, he's concerned especially about young people today. He says that we live in interesting times and yet, for all that, young people are now at sea regarding work, family, and civic identity. Authority is out to lunch. Courtship has disappeared. No one talks about work as vocation. The true, the good, and the beautiful have few defenders. Irony is in the saddle. And the higher criticism mocks any innocent love of wisdom or love of country. The things we used to take for granted have become, at best, open questions. The persons and institutions to which we once looked for guidance have ceased to offer it successfully. Today, we are super competent when it comes to efficiency, utility, speed, convenience, and getting ahead in the world. But we are at a loss concerning what it's all for. This lack of cultural and moral confidence about what makes a life worth living is perhaps the deepest curse of living in our interesting times. Well, Cass suggests that there's a number of domains in which people can and do find meaning within our modern lives. He suggests first the domain of fulfilling work. Secondly, the private domain of love and family and friendship. A third domain, a public domain of devotion to one's community, to one's people, to one's nation. The fourth is a domain of seeking wisdom, pursuing the truth about ourselves and our world. And the fifth is a domain of devotion 
to something higher than ourselves, to the holy, the righteous, the divine. In other words, devotion to God. Now, I think that's true. People do find meaning in those various domains of life. And yet, that can still sound somewhat abstract. What really would help us would be concrete and tangible examples to show us where the good life can be found and how it can be lived. And that is what brings me to the story of David. David's name is mentioned a thousand times in the Bible. And the rise, the fall, and the promised redemption of Israel's greatest king is the single most extensive story told of one person's life in all of Scripture. Without a doubt, David is the most complex and many-sided character in the Bible, and the Bible presents David in all of his humanity, which is what makes him utterly relatable. In fact, those moments of egregious error and failure in his life are what render David most lifelike. He's far from perfect, and yet despite the ups and the downs of his earthly existence, David lives his life in response to God, and that's what counts. In love and friendship, at work or at war, in service to his people or as a slave to his own worst impulses, David's entire life is nothing else if not a confrontation with God. And that's what gives his life meaning. That's what animated his existence. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to explore what God has to say about the good life through a close examination of the David story contained for us in the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel. If you want to live the good life, the first thing you've got to do is figure out who you are. And what we learn from the outset of the David story is the importance of grounding our identity in our relationship to God above and beyond anyone or anything else. And so we'll start today by looking at the episode which first introduces us to the character of David. So we'll take a look at 1 Samuel 16, and as we do, we'll consider the Lord's mission, the Lord's sight, and the Lord's anointed. So if you would, let me invite you to open up a Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 16. You can find this, find this passage beginning on page 238 in the Pew Bible. It's also printed in your order of worship. I'll be reading 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance 
or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is God's word. It's trustworthy and it's true and it's given to us in love. Well, as the scene opens, the Lord asks the prophet Samuel how long he will grieve over Saul. And we get the impression that he's grieving not so much over Saul, but over himself as the prophet for once having chosen Saul as king of Israel. But the Lord tells Samuel to fill his horn with oil and go. He's sending him on a mission to anoint someone new as king. But Samuel is understandably afraid of Saul's response. He knows that obedience to the Lord might actually cost him his life. Saul at this point is a bit unhinged. And Samuel already knows how Saul's anger can be kindled and flare up at the slightest provocation, especially coming from a rival threat. Samuel, as a prophet, might be able to claim that he's got God on his side, but Saul has command of the army. So he's understandably afraid, but God is aware of the political predicament. And so he sends Samuel with a cover story. Tells him to go to Bethlehem under the pretext of offering a sacrifice. Now, upon our initial reading, our sympathies may lie with Saul. We might rightly wonder, well, what has Saul done that's so terribly wrong that God has rejected him as king? Saul's life began with so much promise. He was head and shoulders taller than everyone else. He looked and acted the part of a king. He wasn't looking for fame or power. He didn't anticipate or expect that he would become king. In fact, he recognized that he was from a small and relatively unimportant little tribe in Israel. Who was he? He wasn't looking for kingship, but God, as it were, came looking for him. And yet the tragedy is that it didn't take long for Saul's initial humility to give way to arrogance and greed. As time went on, his pride grew and his reliance upon the Lord began to fade. But the core of the issue is that Saul refused to listen to the Lord's voice. He refused to follow the instruction given to him through the prophet. And when he was confronted about it, he lies on more than one occasion. And therefore Samuel informs him since you have rejected the word of the Lord, the Lord has rejected you as the king of Israel. 
And as an alternative, the Lord is now going to seek out what he calls a man after God's own heart. That's what the Lord wants. A man after God's own heart. 1 Samuel 13, verse 14. But I think there's an important lesson here for all of us. Because Saul was, by all accounts, a success. Saul had it all. Good looks, social charm, leadership ability, military prowess. And even after God calls the end of his kingship here, Saul will still continue to serve in the role as king for many, many years past this point. And so anyone looking from the outside in would be hard-pressed to see that anything is wrong. From the outside looking in, it would appear that Saul is still king. From the outside looking in, it would seem that everything is okay. And if you had been there, if you were living in that moment, Saul very likely would have represented to you everything that you might aspire to be in life. He had it all. And yet, he was deeply, deeply unhappy. Now, you may not be an ancient king, but I would suggest that we all run the exact same risk. Luke Ferry is a French philosopher and a self-proclaimed atheist. I don't reach the same conclusions that he does, but I love reading his work because I'm so appreciative of the ways in which he describes the modern world. And there's one particular place where he says that we today have confused what the ancients called the good life with the merely successful life. He puts it like this, everything combines today to make success, success for its own sake, an absolute ideal in all imaginable domains, sports, the arts, the sciences, politics, business, love, everything is included. But the idea of success is highly contestable. Is it not inadequate, even fallacious, as a standard of evaluating an existence as a whole? Is it not both naive and mistaken to insist on thinking about life in terms of a category better suited for a year-end exam than for the development of a good life? And I love this. He says, isn't it enormously pretentious to think that we can make a success of our lives in the same way that we successfully produce a souffle. He's French. Especially when we consider all the things in our existence that do not depend on us, but rather on the hazards of birth, the pure contingency of events, or the blind strokes of fortune and misfortune. So you see, here's the question for you. Would you rather live a successful life or the good life? Just think about it. You could earn straight A's. You could get into grad school. You could land the dream job. You could be promoted or published or platformed. You could move into the corner office. And then what? And then what? It might feel like nothing. And you see, that's the problem of building your life on success. If you build your life on success, then your ambitions will likely always outstrip your achievements, leaving you feeling anxious and dissatisfied. We can't get no satisfaction. There must be a better way. 
and I believe that there is. So let's turn from the Lord's mission to the Lord's sight. Jesse parades his sons before Samuel the prophet, and Samuel is immediately impressed with Eliab, the oldest, because of his height and his heft. He looks the part. He says, ah, yes, this must be the Lord's anointed. But he's about to repeat the exact same mistake that he had previously made with Saul. Now, the one thing that I want to impress upon you is how carefully crafted the Bible is. The narrator of 1 and 2 Samuel is a master storyteller. So let me draw out an interesting wordplay that doesn't come through in our English translations. You only see it in the Hebrew. But in verse 1, our English translation says, I have provided for myself a king among his sons. But literally in Hebrew, it says, I have seen me among his sons a king. I have seen me among his sons a king. Robert Alter, who's a professor of Hebrew and comparative literature at Berkeley, has written a fabulous commentary on the life of David. And he says that it is essential for us to preserve the literal meaning here because this entire episode is built on the repetition of the thematically weighted word to see. That word to see is riddled throughout this passage. So Samuel thinks that Eliab looks the part. But as we've seen with Saul, looks can be deceiving. So the Lord says to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God's not interested in height. He's interested in the heart. Now, isn't that a word that New Yorkers need to hear? Because here in New York, we're all about outward appearances. We make snap judgments about people based on the way they look or where they work or where they went to school or what kind of clothes they wear. And we're so concerned with outward appearances that we'll go to extraordinary lengths to try to hide our fat or our wrinkles or our gray hair or our bald spots. By the way, I didn't have any gray hair or bald spots before I came to Central. I don't know what that says. <laughs> and it may be worse for young people. I remember being struck by this verse when I was a 15-year-old kid, trying to navigate the complicated world of high school, even before the days of toxic social media. And this was one of the very first verses I ever memorized. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. The Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks on outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And literally, verse 7 says, for the Lord sees with his eyes. For, the, for man sees with his eyes, but the Lord sees with the heart or into the heart. Now, the heart in biblical narrative is not the seat of emotions which is the way that we would often take it as modern people. No, the heart in the Bible is the seat of understanding. The heart describes the real you, who you really are, the core of your being. And so the point is that despite what others might think, and despite what even you might think of yourself, God sees you for who you really are and who you are to become. 
And in fact, you only become the truest version of yourself in relationship to him. And if that's the way in which the Lord sees us, then that is the way in which we need to see one another. Man sees with the eyes, but the Lord sees with the heart. You see why this is so important? We have got to be a place where we model a different way of being human. Our community groups and our Bible studies are going to start this week, and that's one of the best places to make new friends and to grow in our faith and to serve the city together. And in those community groups and Bible studies in particular, rather than following the norms and the practices of typical New York City social life, we have to practice a very different way of relating to one another. So when you show up at that group for the first time this week, do not make snap judgments. Do not judge by outward appearances. Don't look with your eyes. Look with your heart. See the way that God sees. Well, we've considered the Lord's mission and the Lord's sight. Let's turn to the Lord's anointed. One by one, Jesse's sons pass before Samuel the prophet, but the Lord has not chosen any of them as his anointed. So after seven pass by, presumably the number of completion, Samuel asks Jesse, well, do you have any more sons? And Jesse responds by saying, well, they're still the youngest. And that word carries the undertones of insignificance. It could also be translated as the smallest. Well, they're still the baby brother. They're still the runt of the family. As the youngest of seven brothers, David was probably never thought of as more than the kid brother. And so David enters the story unnamed. Well, they're still the youngest. He was considered so small and inconsequential that it never even crossed his own father's mind to invite him. And at this point in the story, David might have only been 10, 11, 12 years old, which is something to think about. And like a male Cinderella, he's been left to his domestic chores and is never even invited to the ball. And he's assigned a task that his family assumed he couldn't possibly screw up. They gave him a job that wouldn't cause any damage. He was simply watching the sheep. But as it turns out, his role as a shepherd will carry symbolic significance when he does become the leader of his people. But the David story reminds us that the Lord has a way of choosing the foolish to confound the wise, the weak to confound the strong, the lowly and despised things of the world, even the things that are not in order to bring to nothing the things that are. See, God works in such a way that it becomes obvious to everyone that it's not because of our wisdom or strength or power, it's only because of his grace. And therefore, not one of us is ever in a position to boast about anything. Well, it turns out that David is good-looking. He's got handsome features and striking eyes. He has ruddy red cheeks because he's so young. And he's not tall like his brothers. But the prophet Samuel doesn't even have an opportunity to judge his outward appearance. Because David is called in from the field, sight unseen. And then the Lord immediately tells Samuel, anoint him. This is the one. Now, the significance of this anointing may not have been apparent to everyone at that moment. 
You see, over time, prophets and priests and kings in the Old Testament would be anointed in order to set them apart for a special task. But that may not have become established practice yet. And moreover, Samuel anoints David secretly and in private in the midst of his brothers. David will not be publicly recognized as the king of Israel until much, much later. But it is from this moment forward that the Spirit rushes upon David and grips him. But the point here is that David is chosen not because of what anyone saw in him, not his father, not his brothers, not even the prophet Samuel. He is chosen only because of what the Lord would create in him. He's picked out of obscurity. God takes the initiative. God makes the first move. David wasn't looking for God. He wasn't searching for God. He wasn't expecting to be found by God. But God comes after him. And that's true of all of us. Because when God calls us into relationship with himself, it is a call of pure grace. God does not call us into his purposes because of our proven ability or our potential promise. The calling into God's purposes is not based on popular vote. No, it is based purely on his grace. It's not about what we put out. It's about what God puts in. And what God puts in is his very own spirit to empower us and to enable us to become our truest selves, to become something greater than we ever would be merely by ourselves. And here's the best part. If you go back and look, you'll see that we don't even hear David's name until the very last verse, verse 13, which gives his name a special place of prominence. Your name, of course, represents you, your person, your character, your identity. And ultimately, from God's point of view, God is the one who names you. You don't create your own identity. You discover your true identity only in relationship to the one who made you and who loves you. Well, you might well wonder, so what? David essentially was a tribal chieftain living in a brutal Iron Age culture 3,000 years ago. What does David have to do with me? But what we need to remember is that the David story is part of a much larger story within the unfolding drama of Scripture. The David story anticipates and foreshadows, it promises and it prepares us for the Jesus story. And it's not for nothing that Jesus is repeatedly referred to as the son of David. We sing in an old great hymn, Hail to the Lord's anointed, great David's greater son. Jesus is great David's even greater son. He is the true and ultimate Lord's anointed. He is the anointed one. The word anointed actually forms the root for the Hebrew word Messiah, or in Greek, Christ. So whenever we speak of Jesus Christ, we're referring to Jesus as the ultimate anointed one. David was anointed the king of the ancient tribes of Israel, but Jesus was anointed as the king of the whole world. And you might ask, well, when was Jesus anointed? The Gospels tell us that he was baptized with water in the River Jordan, and when he came up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus 
in the form of a dove. And he hears the voice of his father say, this is my beloved son, whom I love, and in whom I am well pleased. And that marks the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Acts 10, verse 38 says that God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all. But what was the special task to which Jesus was called as the ultimate prophet, priest, and king? Well, John 12 tells us that just less than two weeks before his untimely death, Jesus goes to the home of his friends, Lazarus and and Martha and Mary. And Mary proceeds to do something shocking. She anoints his feet with a whole pound of expensive ointment. Ointment that was made out of pure nard, an exotic plant that could only be found in the Himalayan mountains. And she takes a pound of this ointment and pours it over Jesus' feet. And his follower, Judas, is horrified by this. He's shocked. What a waste! And what does Jesus do? He says, Judas, leave her alone. Leave her alone. Because she has anointed me for my burial. Jesus was anointed for his burial. That was his special task. Just think about that. King Charles just became the king of the United Kingdom upon the passing of his mother, Queen Elizabeth. Most kings are born to live. Jesus is the only king who was born to die. That is what he came to do. And Jesus, like David, is such an unlikely choice. He comes to us out of obscurity, and he willingly goes to the cross and becomes nothing to look at. In accordance with the words of Isaiah, his appearance is marred beyond all semblance of humanity because of the ways in which he was treated and tortured. But the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And in Jesus, the Lord finds truly a man after God's own heart. A man who is perfectly attuned to God's priorities and willing to do all his will. And so Jesus faithfully carries out the mission that has been entrusted to him. Jesus dies so that you might live. That was his calling. You see, the core message of Christianity is that the creator God who has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus made you. And therefore, he knows you and loves you. He knows you for who you really are because he sees your heart. He knows everything that makes you unique and special, but he also knows those aspects of your personality or your character that can form and create more harm than good. And yet he still loves you. He loves you all despite all your faults and failures, so much so that he was willing to go to the cross for you in order to forgive you, to restore you, and to transform you into the person that his spirit will make you become. So if you want to discover your true identity, you only find it in relationship to him. Whatever God loves, affirms, and desires within you, that forms the real you, and everything that runs counter to his intentions for you 
will only distort and misshape you. We don't create our own identity, despite what the modern world might say. No, we find it, and we find it in relationship to Jesus. And you see, when you identify yourself with Jesus, especially through baptism, God places his name on you and fills you, empowers you, enables you by his spirit to become more than you ever otherwise would. And through your identification with Jesus, God the Father will speak the same words over you that he spoke over him. He looks at you and he says, this is my beloved child whom I love and with whom I am well pleased. So if you want to discover your true identity, put your trust in great David's greater son, the Lord's anointed, Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, we acknowledge that we long to live a meaningful, fulfilling life that makes sense, and yet we are so confused about where such a life can be found. Help us to see that you and you alone offer us the good life, and you show us how it can be lived. You empower us to live it through your Spirit. So help us to identify ourselves with you, recognizing that it is only from you that we discover our true identity. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.